Today's scripture is Acts 2, 14 through 41. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades, or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we all are witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit. He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his words were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. 
This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, good morning, my friends. As Vince said, I am uh, Jim Ellis. I love Semper Gumby. That's because I was in the Coast Guard for eight years uh, and learned that there. Um, I am an elder at Redemption and was part of the plant a couple of years ago. In fact, our anniversary is coming up in two weeks. Uh, I was a Navy chaplain for 24 years. And after that, I had a chance to teach in in a university, two of them for about 10. I've been married to Shirley for 38 years, and I think she's in this service. Uh, And I'm gray because I have three daughters. I can't speak to boys, but I can tell you what girls do to you. (laughs) Anyway, (laughs) so uh, very good. Um, A couple things I want to do as we get started. I want to give you some homework. And you go, oh, I came to church to get homework. Yeah, you betcha. Um, uh, So here you go. If, If you have pen and pencil... I want you to write down a couple words, okay? The first one is flat Bible, okay? And you go, flat Bible. That sounds like a deep theological concept. Well, it really is an interpretation concept, uh, and it's, it's the idea that we have read the Scripture so much, we have heard the story so often that it's like, boring. <laughs> and you would go, oh, no, Jim, that's not true. <laughs> well, you read Numbers or Leviticus and, <laughs> and some of those, and you're going, I'm sleeping before I get through the first chapter, um, so flat Bible, and what that means in essence is the Bible has no texture. You lose sight of the smells, uh, of the awe, of the newness of what's happening in Scripture, and we just kind of go through it ho-hum. The other word or concept I want you to write down is messianic age. So messianic age, and that's the age that we are in now. And it began when Jesus came, and it will end when Jesus returns. The disciples thought the Messianic Age would, would maybe last 20 or 30 years, although they didn't know that term. Uh, but that was kind of the, and, and, and their presumption. And now 2017 years and days later, we're still waiting uh, for the Messianic Age to come to a conclusion. And then one more word I'll mention in a minute, and I don't know if you'll ever re- read about this, but the word is pesher, P-E-S-H-E-R. It's a Hebrew word that... Sometimes it's interpreted interpretation, and that's what, what Peter does when he quotes Joel, and I'll show you that in a moment. So let me just recap with us where, where, where we've been in Acts. Um, you remember Jesus was with them. He said, hang tight. He ascends, and now they're waiting and waiting and waiting. And then all of a sudden, there's wind, big wind. And uh, John described that, getting knocked off on a snowboard. Uh, and you've been in other places where the wind just blows and you're leaning into it hard. Uh, and then there's fire. They can see flames, something going on there. And then there's languages. Something's cooking. And what's, what, what many scholars believe is the 120 were not by the temple initially. They were up in an upper room, maybe the one that Jesus and the disciples met at before, but they're not far from the Temple Mount. And if you've been to Jerusalem you can kind of get an idea what's that like because the Temple Mount's high. At the time, there were buildings around it. So thousands of people are gathered. They felt the wind. <laughs> they know something's going on. And then this crowd of 120 spills out on the street around the temple. And they're Galileans. <laughs> Not the brightest bulbs in the box, <laughs> people would say. You know, Galileans, a little different there, you know, kind of coarse, rough guys. And 
even maybe some of the ladies. <laughs> but here are five to ten, I'm sorry, ladies, anyway, five to ten thousand people gathered, and they want to know what's going on. What? These people are speaking my language from all around the known world. So Peter speaks up. Now, I have to tell you that when it says in Scripture that Peter stands up, Peter was not sitting down, okay? There were no seats around the temple, but the, but, but, but the 120 are kind of gathered in this group, and when they start asking questions, then Peter stands forward, and he men of Israel, and he begins to talk. I've got to tell you, Peter's on my heavenly bucket list. <laughs> I'm not anxious to go, but I'm like, when I get there, I want to have a time with Peter, because he's a guy who lives life on his sleeve, man. <laughs> if Peter thought it, he said it. I mean, let's face it. <laughs> no, Lord. Oh, sorry, Lord. I shouldn't have said that. You're right, Peter. But, um, okay. And then Peter is the denier. No, I won't. There is no way in you know where that I'm going to deny you. And sure enough, there he goes. Um, and then in John 21, they're fishing. He takes all the boys back to the sea. And as they see who Jesus is, there's Peter. John goes, it's, oh, it's him. And Peter's out, and he's going across, running across the bottom of the lake, uh, getting to Jesus. And there, Peter is reinstated. And in reality, you know that when Peter's reinstated, so are the other ten. Because they all stand behind Peter like they're doing today, as we're going to look at, at Pentecost. These guys are right behind Peter. It's, it's, it's this little kind of curve going, what he said. Yeah. And so when Peter gets reinstated, they're all going, oh, we love you, Lord. <laughs> Please know that we do. So then Peter begins to teach and preach like he never expected. I will tell you, you talk to Peter, he would go, don't ask me what was going on. All I know is this, I started going and things were coming. And he begins to take prophecy from Joel and interpret it. And I think if we talked to Peter, it would blow him away. Because it's the first time that the Christian message, the church, is being put together. This has never happened before. There's no Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. There's no way to go, do you remember what Jesus said in Matthew 3 or Mark 4? There's none of that yet. So here's Peter taking, uh, being directed by the Holy Spirit, taking what he knows from Scripture, and he begins to lay things out. In the military, when you finish an operation and you're, you know, collecting all your stuff, what we do really quickly, typically the day after or so, is we do what's called a hot wash. And all the players get together in a big room, and you go through the operation. Okay, what, what was the goal? What, what was the objective? How did we do? You know, the good things, the bad things, and, and the things with that, and that we want to take away, and, and over and over. And you go through the event, and you capture lessons, and you review the mission. Can you imagine the hot wash after Pentecost? Okay? <laughs> Pentecost is done, and apparently they probably stayed there a couple days, the way the text reads, that, and, and that it just wasn't a 10-minute oration. In fact, in the book of Acts, there are 19, uh, not, I'll say speeches recorded by Luke, but not one of them is verbatim. They're all short summaries of a much longer uh, dialogue and, 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 and sermon. So these guys get together, and they go, okay, Peter, how did you do that? He goes, personally, I really don't know. And then he smiles, and he goes, the Holy Spirit. That's it. Do you remember that Jesus said he will remind you of everything I have said to you in John? John 14, that's what Jesus said to us. Oh, 
some of those discussions we had as disciples, that's part of this. And then he'd say, Jesus said, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth in John 16. So I think as Peter stood back with the 120, they begin to see that this is a movement of the Holy Spirit. Not only tongues, a known language, but the enablement to speak of things that have never, ever been spoken before. And when you read, like I read a flat Bible, we go, okay, all right. They poured out, Peter, these guys did, did this, and we're like, but it was new. And I don't know how to capture that for us, but it was brand new. What Peter says had never been said before until that day and that hour. Peter's preaching to three groups of people, uh, maybe three groups in one person. So he's preaching to the Jews, his brothers, and he begins to unfold for them things that they're like, wow. And we get the wow of it because at the end of the sermon, we see the response from these people. Their hearts are cut. And if you read Acts, you'd go, <laughs> doesn't feel real cutting to me. <laughs> I mean, I'm, you know, and again, why? Because you weren't there. You don't have the context of, of being a Jew and being born uh, in that kind of culture. So he's preaching to the Jews. He's preaching to the 120. Those 120, the 10 in the center, are going, oh, Peter, that's good. Oh, Peter, no way. Is that what Joel means? God, God, that's quick. And that's what David was, was talking about in Psalm 110, verse 1. No. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Jesus did say that, didn't he? He did. And then Peter is preaching to himself. Because as the words come out of Peter's mouth, I can just imagine Peter going, whoa, wow. Man, that's awesome. Good job. Good. That's God. Lord, that's what you're doing. And he interprets the Old Testament for the first time. That's what he does. He is the first Christian to interpret the Old Testament. And he applies Joel and David's comments to, to Jesus. The crowd that day, Scripture tells us, are, that, that, and that they want to know what's going on. They're perplexed. They're curious. What does this mean? Others mocked Jesus. Or, I'm sorry, Peter. Um, and this is where Jesus has providentially these uh, these folks. Because this is where Jesus had been killed just seven weeks ago. So we think, oh, this is years later. Uh-uh. This is fresh on the memory of many, many people. And the results of this, 3,000 got saved. Not bad. Um, <laughs> and again, as I said, Luke is just giving us a little, little bit about that. I want to walk us through this quickly uh, and so that you can grasp Peter's methods and arguments and I think it can help us even as we share our faith uh, in the in the future. Peter's encouraging them, them to put on spiritual lenses so they can really see what's happening and Peter does this two ways primarily. One is Peter focuses. Peter's focus is on the fulfillment of Joel in that prophecy in verses 14 to 21. Then Peter provides facts for them to wrestle with in 22 to 36. And the fact is this, that Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works, wonders, and signs, is the Lord and the Christ Messiah, whom you crucified. Pretty direct. Stomping on some toes. And lastly, Peter responds to the appeal of, what shall we do, Peter? Our hearts are broken by what you've shared with this. This is an important teaching passage because it sets the stage 
for the rest of the book of Acts and even us as a church, as Peter explains Joel and the facts surrounding Jesus. So Peter's focus is this in uh, verse 21 on Joel's prophecy about the outpouring of the Holy Spirit that Peter says, hey, you guys have just seen this. And Peter seems to have a sense of humor when some of the folks are going, they're drunk, they're drunk. And Peter goes, it's too early to get drunk. Even Galileans don't drink that early. (laughs) I mean, no, man, you might think we're coarse, but we wait till at least noon. I'm only kidding about that too. But uh, so the Jews typically would not have eaten or drunk during this hour of Pentecost. Then Peter begins to explain that what was spoken through the prophet of Joel is what you're seeing here today. Now, I got to ask, anybody read Joel this week? Come on. (laughs) Nobody in the first service either, so you're not alone. (laughs) But um, not a book that we often visit or spend much time uh, looking at. Uh, And Peter doesn't have the, the scroll of Joel. Peter doesn't have a Bible open. Peter quotes from memory what Joel has says, what, 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 what Joel has said. Now, what Peter says is, hey, guys, we're in the last days. Now, maybe that's another one you need on your list of four. We've got Messianic Age, Flat Bible, Pesher, and Last Days, because that's what we are in now. Again, new words to the Jews. The last days? Oh, is this what the prophets are talking about? And Peter, I think, would say, uh, yeah, I think so. <laughs> I mean, it's coming to me as I speak to you. And, and Peter goes, hey, this is God's time for us. And nobody knows it'll be 2,000 years, but, but it is uh, that as we know. Paul puts it this way to us as far as perspective, that we are the ones upon whom the ends of the ages have come. And Peter gives us more perspective when he writes his book probably 25 years later from the time here we are in Acts. When he says this, he goes, In the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts and saying, Where is the promise of his coming? Hmm. And then Peter goes on to say that one day with the Lord is like a thousand years, and a thousand years like one day. Ooh, that's a perspective we need to take back with us. What in essence Peter is saying, again, we are now in the end times, when this prophecy, this prophecy is now being fulfilled. Um, Peter's use of Joel is what biblical scholars have identified from the Dead Sea Scrolls as a typical form of Hebrew teaching called a pesher. It lays all emphasis on fulfillment without attempting to exegete the details of the biblical prophecy it interprets. So Peter goes, here's Joel, boom, and you know, you saw, uh, as Allison read that, it talks about smoke and fire and all this stuff, and Peter goes, that's not the point of this. And if we were in a typical evangelical Bible study, that's what people want to study. Let's talk about the smoke and the fire. and What's going on here? And Peter goes, no. What's going on here is that the Spirit was being poured out on all flesh once and for all. In the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit only showed up on individual people at individual times. But today it's being poured out on all people. And Peter connects the incarnation, the crucifixion, the resurrection, the ascension, and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit together, again, for the first time. Never happened before this day. So Peter, two points out of, out of this uh, prophecy. The first one is this, that the Spirit is poured out 
on not just the prophets or the rabbis, but the sons and daughters, hmm, older men, younger men, would know the Lord and his will. Not just the wealthy, but even the poor, the bond slaves, would know the fullness of the Spirit. And again, not just men, but women also. This is a universal showing of the Holy Spirit. The second point of this Joel prophecy is that Peter says, and everyone, I should say Joel says this, Peter quotes him, who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Revolutionary. You just got to call on the name of the Lord and you'll be saved? Uh (laughs) Uh-huh. These Jews are all twisted up, man. But about 3,000 of them do get it as uh, as, as, as the day passes on. So that Peter has used Joel to focus their attention, and now he reminds the men of Israel, his brothers, as he calls them now, the facts. And that's in verses 22 to 36. The fact is that Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to them by God with mighty works, wonders and signs, is the Lord and the Christ, the Messiah, whom you killed. And here we get to see the gospel laid out for the first time, really, ever in Scripture by, by, by one of the disciples. And what Peter does is he identifies four facts, four things that God uses to authenticate Jesus as Lord and Christ. The first one found in verse 22 is that God authenticates Jesus as Lord and Christ through his miracles. Even Jesus' enemy, I should say enemies, had to admit the fact of his miracles, although some of them attributed them to Satan. But most people acknowledge, as Nicodemus did, that no one can do, do these signs that you do unless God is with him. So Peter reminds his audience that Jesus had done many such miracles in their midst, and most of them had to go like this. You're right. Either we know of it personally, we saw them, or we have firsthand knowledge from our friends, folks who, who watch Jesus, Jesus' work. Secondly, God authenticates, Peter shares this, Jesus as Lord and Christ through his death. At first glance, we would think that Jesus' death would have invalidated his messianic claims. But Peter shows that Jesus was not killed because he was a victim of his enemies. He was killed because God predetermined before the world began that Jesus would die as a savior of his people. People, Isaiah 53.10, many of you know that, but the Lord was pleased to what? To crush him, putting him to grief. And so rather than invalidating his ministry, his death actually validates him since it was a fulfillment of God's eternal decree. Question is, does this mean that since God determined it, men are not responsible for it? And Peter goes, no, 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 no. He says, you nailed him to a cross by the hands of lawless men, the Romans, and put him to death. So the fingers are going like this. And what we see in the crucifixion is a perfect example of human free will and divine sovereignty set side by side. Without violating man's will, God used evil men to accomplish his eternal purpose. But these evil men were responsible for their crime. No one can can blame God for his own sin. Thirdly, P. 
Peter shares the fact that God authenticates Jesus as Lord and Christ through his resurrection. Now, it's interesting. This goes, Peter takes nine verses here, 24 to 32. He spent one verse on the first two each. And now, Peter spends nine on the resurrection, which is the main theme of the apostolic preaching in the book of Acts. If Jesus is still in the grave, then there ain't no church. But Jesus is not in the grave. He has resurrected and was seen by many over the time after. Peter says this, you put him to death, but God raised him up. You put him to death, but God raised him up. And then what Peter does is he links two Psalms together, okay? Psalm 110, verse 1, if you have time to do this, Jesus uses as a messianic psalm. If you go through Mark, I'm sorry, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you will find that Jesus quotes that psalm about himself. And then Peter takes Psalm 16, and he brings them, he links them together because of the words, at my right hand. They appear in both Psalms. And the principle of, of, of interpretation is, if if both Psalms have the same words, then we can link them and use them for a basis of, uh, of authority. And so Peter now makes Psalm 16 a messianic psalm. The rabbis would have never seen that. They would have gone, no way, Peter. What? And now they've got to start digging in the scrolls to go, oh, Peter, yeah, you've taken one of our principles of interpretation, Psalm 110, verse 1, and linked it with Psalm 16, 8 through 10, Man, we never saw that before. And I would dare say Peter had never seen it before until he is in this uh, circumstance that, and that God puts him in. So David, David declares, as Peter quotes him, that God will not abandon his soul to Hades, nor allow his Holy One to, to, to undergo decay. But Peter insists that David could not be speaking of himself for David both died and was buried in the tomb of David. David was right there in Jerusalem. In other words, David's body did undergo decay. Therefore, David as a prophet, and again, I don't think, and it's the one thing I forgot to check this uh, yesterday while, when I was working the text, I don't think David is identified as a prophet until now. I could be wrong, but I don't think anywhere in Scripture is David identified as a prophet until Acts. So it's interesting. Here's some more new information for us. So David as a prophet knew that God had promised to seat one of his descendants on his throne. So he looked ahead and what David was speaking of was the resurrection of Christ. It's very, very interesting. And he says, Peter identifies Jesus as the Messiah when he says this in verse 32, this Jesus delivered or raised up of what we are all witnesses this Jesus, I can see the other 11 behind Jesus going, yeah, this Jesus, we knew him. Yeah, we were there. We saw that. Peter, great point. But there's one more piece of final evidence that, and that Peter points out that God uses to authenticate Jesus as Lord in Christ, and that's through his exaltation and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Peter states that Jesus ascended, God exalted him, and, that, and he was the one who sent the Holy Spirit as evidenced by the miracle of everyone speaking in a foreign language. Again, he cites David when he says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool 
for your feet. Since David is not seated at the right hand of God, this must refer to the Messiah. And then Peter comes to his punchline in verse 36. As he brings this sermon to a close, he says, Therefore, let all of the house of Israel, who I'm speaking to, know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, meaning the Messiah, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now, because we don't live there, we don't understand the Jewish culture like they did. We don't experience everything that was happening in Jerusalem at that time. We kind of go, okay, okay. But, but we see the response and Peter's application to them. The, the, and the, the crowd responds with conviction in verse 37. It says that 3,000 are said to be cut to the heart. And their response, Peter doesn't have to give an invitation. Will you come on down now and let's talk? Their response is, what must we do? Peter, well, you're killing us. We understand that we are responsible for killing our own Messiah. The truth of the gospel convinced, convicted, and converted, what's these people to a conversion where they were cut to their heart. An application for us is we do not need to manipulate and push people to Jesus. You're going to get saved? You're going to love Jesus? You're going to kill? No. That's what the gospel's job is. Paul says this, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. What's, what's remarkable is the offense of the cross is what draws people or what draws the lost in the most remarkable way. That Jesus would die for me? Oh. Then Peter applies his message, and he says this, You must repent, you must be baptized, and you will receive the promise. Repentance, we've studied that a lot. Repentance and faith are flip sides of the same coin. You can't have true saving faith without repentance. And Peter says, you must repent, you must turn. 180 degrees, you're walking this way, now you must walk this way. And then he says, each of you must be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Peter is calling them, as God does to us, to an individual response. Salvation is always a personal transaction, not a group plan. And when Peter called upon these people to be baptized, he was calling them to make a most traumatic and radical choice because they were going to break with their culture in ways that would just blow your mind. Because what happened, and the book of Hebrews talks about this, when those Jewish folks became Christians, they were put out of their home instantly. You're a, you're a Christ believer? You're out. So you lost your inheritance. You lost your job because more than likely you're working with dad. You've lost your family. You are gone. So for those people to deny their culture, to deny their faith, and go to Christ, it costs them everything. Something that I don't think we get a hold of and we don't under, understand. Traumatic and radical, no doubt. And, the, and then Peter proclaims God's promise that they will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit when they repented and trusted in Christ. And that was part of God's gift of salvation to them. And the result we know in verse 41. 
3,000 souls saved. You know, much of evangelism in our country and modern evangelism tries to make becoming a Christian as easy as possible. Just got to believe, man. God has a wonderful plan for your life. (laughs) Just got to believe. We don't talk about the cost of discipleship. We dodge the issue of sin. Um, we, would, uh, we wouldn't dare call on the people to make a radical break with their culture that this faith that you trust in, that you repented toward, is going to cause some changes in your life. And that's the opening part of the first Christian sermon given by Peter. New to him, definitely new to all those who were there, and I hopeful, hopeful that we, it can be new to us again because we read it all the time. You've probably read Acts maybe 10 times in your life, maybe more. And it's like, oh, there it is, there it is, there it is. But again, because, we, because we're affected by a flat Bible, we often lose the smells, the texture, the context of what's happening in people's lives that day. As we uh, move into a time of response, uh, a couple things I want to, um, yeah, just challenge you with, uh, offer to you. The first one is this, that God redeems our mistakes multiple times like he did Peter. You cannot read this passage and go, wow, Peter, this is you? Come on, Peter, we've seen you. (laughs) We've read about you. You're pretty interesting. But now Peter takes what God has given him through the Holy Spirit and shares things that are absolutely wonderful and earth-changing um, there in Jerusalem. Secondly, we have been in a period of waiting since Pentecost to accomplish God's work. That's what we are here to do. We have a quarter of time for us now as we wait for the messianic return. Jesus is coming back. So we need to live wisely and seek the, to intersect the lives of others. So as you have a few moments, as you consider the fact that God can use your mistakes How are you living? Are you living in a wise way? And are you seeking to intersect the lives of others? And then thirdly, our entry point in people's lives today is very different, far different from what Peter experienced that day. Our ability to help people focus and share the facts, as Peter did, has been likened to a pink Baskin and Robbins spoon. You know what that spoon's for? A little taste. You go, oh, can I, oh, let's have this. Throw that spoon out. Let me get a little list. (laughs) And down we go through the big thing of vats of ice cream. And that's many times the only uh, thing, the only way we can share our faith is one little taste at a time. Because people have been burned. They have a bad feeling about Christians. Whatever their response is, it's just one little taste at a time. And that's a different way than what Peter experienced in his life. So we offer a taste of the gospel. When the opportunity comes, we need to be ready to share the hope that we have within us. Lance is going to come and lead us in the response in a moment. Uh, I want to just lead us in prayer uh, as we begin to move to that portion of the service. Father, thank you for the chance to see your hand moving in the people of Israel in a way that we could only Proclaim hallelujah. Praise God. Father, we stand many years past that event. And Father, we stand as men and women in great debt to you and to your son. Father, thank you that you take our mistakes, 
that you use them for your honor and glory. Father, thank you that, that you give us a chance to intersect other people's lives. We pray, Lord, that you'd help us to live wisely. And Father, you, I pray that you'd help us all be ready to give a testimony to the hope that we have within us as we walk today and the next day, Lord, as we wait for your son's return. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.